Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. I'm Robin Harford and you'll find the show notes and various links that are covered in this episode at eatweeds.co.uk forward slash podcast. Today I'm really excited. We've got an amazing guy on called Mark Duffel from Alvensis Ecology and Mark is a gold standard botanist, ecologist and horticulturalist works with the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland and all manner of things. Mark, welcome. Would you like to just give us a bit of background uh, about your work and your focus? Yes, thank you for having me on, Robin. My background is originally horticultural background training and then I, I went into botany and studied a master's and that concentrated on species identification and since that time, I've set up my own botanical consultancy, Arvensis Ecology, where we go out and survey sites using those identification skills. But we're looking at assessing a habitat for its suitability, identify the plants, the botanical interests of the site, and that's usually for conservation interest. And then also I do within our consultancy, we do an awful lot of training. I work with Manchester Metropolitan University as one of their lecturers on their master's programme in biological recording and in ecological monitoring. So that's my side of the, the course that I teach is um, the identification of the botanical identification, but also the core module on biological recording, which is making those natural history observations that tell us about what plants or animals occur in a given place and time. And we've been doing biological recording for centuries and all of this data is really useful to know where plants exist. We can see changes over time. We can see um, increases, decreases in a species. So if I want to know where to find a particularly rare plant, or maybe I want to go and forage a particular plant, there is this whole data set out there that we can use and can be employed. Now, I also um, work with other organisations. So Robin's mentioned the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland. I'm on various committees there, training, skills and training committees. I'm also what's called a referee, which means that people send me specimens or photos of specimens and I identify those. I'm just one of many referees. I particularly look at so non-native uh, trees and shrubs. So that's useful from my horticultural background. And Robin's mentioned as well, that had this gold standard, this botanist, this gold standard is a, a, a label that's loosely used. It's because I work on the field identification skill certificates, which are a brilliant way of assessing a botanist's um, field skills, their identification skills, and also their abilities to find a plant in the field. So in these tests, what you do is you have laboratory tests and you also have a field test. And in the laboratory test, you have 10 plants with no specimens. So that could be a, a piece of wild garlic with, in flower and, and leaf. And you, and you don't have any books. So you just have to recognise them or not, um, know them or not. The second part of the test would be that you have any plants contained in the British flora. So it could be native, non-native. It could be from the Shetland Isles to the Scilly Isles, anywhere, Ireland as well. And they could be from coastal habitats to the top of mountains. So literally anything. These can be challenging, really challenging, like hybrids. They can be obscure sedges that might only have two sites in the whole of the British Isles. And you're allowed books there and you, you key those out. So that's a good assessment of can you identify something? 
And then in the afternoon, we go out and, and there's no wrong answer. There are wrong answers in the morning, but you don't get penalised. So if you said it was three-cornered leek and it's actually garlic or white bluebell, then you would get it wrong, but you don't get penalised. In the afternoon, this is where we teach cautious recording. And that's what I'm all about. My whole teaching that I do, my whole surveying that I do is caution in our identifications. And it's equally even more important in foraging, actually, because if I make something wrong on a report or a survey, I can get pulled up on it, but I'm not going to poison my family. Whereas I, if something I'm going to put in my mouth, I really want to know what it is. So in the afternoon, we go out, we have a small site, and this is where the gold standard comes in. This is where I'm employed at the same time to go out and survey at the same time as these people, the candidates, and we make a species list for the site. And we all go around independently making a list and then it's compared back to my list. And it's not that I have the perfect list. I have as good a list as I can make. We also compare it with historical data that we have for the site. And um, if they have any plants that, let's say, for in extreme, they've put a coastal plant and we're surveying in Shropshire, that's a real no. Then we have a few plants where we'll have to use our judgments as to whether could it be there or not. Hasn't been recorded by me on that day, but historically it has. So we'll often allow that. Mm -hmm. So all of these things pulled together actually allow us to assess very reliably how good a botanist you are. And it's not a pass fail, it's a level. So you get a grade of between it's a zero to seven scale. We can't award a seven. That's like the gods. That's well above me. A zero is the member of public who's walked by and doesn't even notice there's a tree there. So we generally award between one and five and rarely are you a level six. And yeah. It's been a really useful tool for um, assessing professional botanists now, but also a lot of amateur botanists do it. And in the biological recording world, the world that I work in, amateurs are not, it's not the same phrase as maybe if I was say, talking about amateur doctors. I would probably not go to an amateur surgeon, but I would have a lot of confidence in an amateur botanist. Amateurs make up 70% of the data that's collected in the British Isles is collected wow. by amateurs. So unpaid people is what I'm meaning, really. They're professional in their approach, but they're not. That feeds whole, all into the whole citizen scientist area doesn't it that's trying to be encouraged which is important so two reasons why i got you why i've got you on obviously botany we're foragers the audience that listen to this are predominantly people that gather plants for a particular use that might be food that could well be medicine and that could be craft and other utilitarian uses so I'm part of this, the group that I set up for my customers. And one of my kind of frustrations with technology, don't get me wrong, we're doing this. I love technology. It's brilliant, but it also has downsides. So when I first started IDing plants, I didn't have anyone to go to. Didn't even know about the BSBI. So it was very much bootstrap. Get, us, get pretty much all the books out of the library watercolours, the keys, line drawings, photos, the whole lot. And that's how I got up to speed with the specific plants I wanted, because just, most people just want to know the food plants and they're not, when they first start out, they might not necessarily be interested in all the other plant species that are around. So I wanted to cover the kind of advice you would give, because for me, I I've got this phrase, point click post and we see that a lot in the group we see people who are just they, they see a, 
a plant. They don't know what it is. They point at it with their camera, they click, they take a photo, and then they post it to the group or some other group. And to me, that doesn't really help with plant blindness. It doesn't help with developing observation skills or awareness. And it's a bit, I once described it to a friend last week, it's a bit like rushing around Primark on Black Friday, grabbing all the goodies. And it's more kind of hoarding of data, which we can talk about the rights and wrongs of what, how do we gather, certainly from an ecological point of view. So the first question I want to put you is for novice foragers or anyone, what would be your advice on how they can begin to safely identify wild plants? Specifically, ideally, we go out with people, but if they haven't got any anyone to go out with, what would be your recommendation? Okay, I would start slowly is the first thing. Don't go out and try and identify everything. We were talking earlier about how you, we run these tests and fisks and things. I'm expected when I go out on a site to get about 140 plants or so in a small reserve, a two football pitch area. That's not what you should be aiming to do. If you can identify two or three things competently and confidently, then that's perfect. That's what you should start with. So start slowly. Keep going back to the same areas as well. It's Well, haven't we all been doing this in lockdown, but we've been repeatedly going back to our local patches so by revisiting the same site, you're seeing the same things throughout the season and you're starting to pick a, build a mental image of what people, things look like. So you're seeing things that, whereas it comes through as a new shoot, you're seeing things as they're maturing, they're flowering, they're going to seed. So next time you come across this thing in autumn, you suddenly recognise, oh yeah, I remember that was connected to that. So you're starting to see it throughout the season. So it's I liken this to, you get onto a, a, a train every day to do your commute and you happen to notice someone's got a name badge on them then you see it once and you'll forget that you won't and they're on the commute every day but if you actually strike up a conversation with them and talk to them a bit and see them in different times and, and so on you're going to remember that plant a lot better so this is exactly what <clears throat> we should be doing we should be engaging with the plant collect a little bit of it bring it home pull it apart dissect the flowers work out what the structures are there then you'll start to become familiar with some of the plant families you'll see a bluebell and you'll you'll pull it apart and you start to realize oh yeah that shares common features with other similar plants and then oh why is it not quite like that oh, it's got the ovary in a different place and that sort of thing and after all and these terms i'm using i might be using calyx and corolla again they're new terms potentially there's a whole new vocabulary and it can be quite tricky to start off with. If I was to go and do invertebrate stuff, look at insects, I'd still suddenly have to learn about thoracic segments and whatever and tarsus. So I'm learning new terms, which I'm not familiar with. So it's like learning a new language, but that's that can be fun as well. Find a really good flora, a really good book you can trust. There are lots of books out there to ID plants. Some are of better value than others. Some have just photos, which are very small. They're really so small that they don't show enough detail. And what you want is multiple photos of the same thing, ideally. But again, photos in a book are quite hard to produce that many. So this is why I actually like a lot of the um, illustrated books, because they can put multiple bits, they can do cutaways and all of these things. So there's some, yeah, uh, some really good guides and I can talk about which ones are good there. And then there's a, a funny thing really is that forget about the plant. You go out in the wild, you find your plant. 
you identify it, you get help. Maybe you do post it on a website or a Facebook page and someone identifies it for you. That's a very passive thing to do there, just posting it up. Someone who can shout a name and on Facebook and it could be right or wrong. Do you remember it? No. But I say, once you've forgotten something, I know for me, I remember learning plants. I'd forget it about three times the name and a third time it would stick. But the way I got it to ingrain in, in my brain was by actually actively keying it out, actively looking at it. The first time I keyed it out, I'd get the name or hopefully get the name and then check it on in a book and various other sources. And then I might forget it again. But the second time as I'm keying it out again or picture matching in a book I suddenly get oh yeah I remember now it's in the cabbage family oh there weren't many cabbage families that have pink petals there are a couple of things but one's a bit woodier one has these ash-like leaves and oh yeah oh, that could be one of the uh, bittercresses and then but the bittercresses generally have little white small flowers and then after a while you think oh that's lady smock or cuckoo flower cardamony pretense so once you've learnt your flowers and this is what's lovely with students is getting that real suddenly click of recognition. I teach with plant families. If you can learn to recognize, and this is recognition, not identification, but the key features of the top 20 UK plant families, that means you can recognize just under about three quarters of the British plants, flowering plants. So once you know what a dead nettle looks like, and dead nettles have square stems, opposite leaves, they have flowers which are zygomorphic, which is another way for saying they've got one plane of symmetry. So like our face, they've only got a, a mirror down the middle. They also have these flowers that are in clusters, which we, the botanists use the verticillasters, which is this really dense cluster around the stem. But you can, like when you see mints and that sort of thing, they're in a tight cluster or a whorl. But those are the terms, once you see that and then see something like ground ivy and you start to look at it again and go, oh, they've got the same features. And there's, there's, it's that lovely light bulb moment that people get when they suddenly recognise it. But then equally, they see something like a figwort and think, oh, that looks very similar. Square stems, opposite leaves. Oh, it must be a dead nettle. And then they start and they're pulling it apart. And I use a lot of floral formally in my teaching, which is a way of getting people to really structure their looking at, at a plant and floral they said, forming did you call that floral formulae formulae so as in math and like mathematical formula and this is a way that you start to realize that each family has a unique formula or very, almost unique some of them are unique like the brassicaceae the cabbage family is unique the world over which means i could drop a polish botanist into a classroom here or an ecuadorian botanist or drop myself there and see a member of the cabbage family with the same the world over so I often use floral formulae. I use this when I travel abroad as, as much as in this country. And it's a really useful tool to be able to recognize the, the parts of a flower in that each family has a, a set sort of formula of five petals, five sepals, 10 stamen, many uh, stigmas and those sort of things. And after a while, you start to recognize different families jumping out. So I've done this in this country as well. I've had a plant I'm not familiar with. I've pulled it apart and written down the floral formula, looked at the symmetries of the flowers, and then suddenly realised, oh, of course, it's this family. And then that speeds you up so much because rather than starting at the beginning of a book, you're starting halfway through the book or uh, you've got a smaller chapter. And uh, knowing you're in the rose family as opposed to the lily family, it's so much more useful. So my, my plant mentor, a guy called Frank Cook, that most people these days don't know about. He introduced a book to Britain. I think he was the trailblazer for it by a guy called Thomas Elpwell in America called Botany in a Day. 
which is the pattern method of plant identification for, and spoke focuses specifically on keying out families. Yeah. Have you come across this book? I have, yes, and it's interesting. It's reinvented the wheel, but it's brought it to a, a new audience. So it's a really, the pattern method is basically floral formulae, just rewritten and he invented it himself without realizing it had already been invented, but that's fine uh, because it brought out, brought ID to a, a different sort of group of people and yeah. uh, that's no bad thing in getting more people into plant. Yeah, I find it a useful book. I promote it with teaching as well. It's yeah, the idea that you've got these patterns in nature is fairly obvious. And that's again is a, the thing that we use in floral formulae. So the fact in um, most of the cabbage family, you've got four petals, six stamen, and two carpels, the, the ovaries structure. That's exactly what he's uh, proposing in there. He just doesn't write it down in a nice, neat, uh, short code. Whereas I can write, instead of saying what I've just said in a long series of words, I can use the, the plus symbol. C, C4, K, uh, sorry, K4, C4, um, A6, G2. And that's just, that's floral formulae. So it's just a, like a mathematical formula without being maths. So yeah. this is where yeah, it comes shorthand, in. isn't it? Just, just shorthand. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So is there, a, is there a, a UK specific or British R specific book for people to get to grips with plant families? The, one of the best books, I think, is the Collins Guide by Streeter, and it's got beautiful illustrations. It's, uh, yeah, it's a really nice book. doesn't mention floral formulae as such, but in, once you start reading the descriptions, it does a lot. It, the illustrations capture the form of the plants really well. They highlights the good diagnostic features, so those reliable features that separate the plants. There's lots of features that make a plant look like it's something, but to have a really diagnostic feature is another thing. It's like trying to identify humans by hair um, and hair, but we can change our hair length, our hair color, and so easily. And plants do that. They have different color morphs. They have slight growth slightly differently in shade and some. So you need really good, robust features, characters to use that. There are also some good guides from the Field Studies Council, and one of deals with um, botanical terminology, which has a bit in on there on floral formulae. But they also have some really good, useful ones to habitats, so like grasslands, yeah. moorlands, woodlands. And although they don't necessarily, I think there is one on foraging. There might be one on foraging. They have just started doing one, yeah. Yeah, but they those say the woodland ones. That's useful to take out. You can literally play snap with it, picture match. But that's a good way to go out there. You think you found wood, wild, wood sorrel, um, oxalis acetosella, and you can match it against a picture. And on the back, there'll be some descriptions of it. So they're very light, easy to carry, whereas the most of our floras are a bit bigger, a bit more, more robust. But then you've, you're obviously getting a better ID resource in a book because you've got all the other families as well. But the other thing I think people get frightened of is using scientific names. Yeah. We shouldn't be scared of them. I think a lot of people seem to push away from them. And I've noticed this uh, actually with a few people who I've met who are foragers who come on my courses. They seem to be very hesitant and resistant to it. And almost they feel it's elitist. There's a bit of a yeah feeling that it's maybe not snobbish to use them, but that sort of thing, certainly in elitism. I find once they see the value of them, they start using them quite quickly. So for instance, I've collected over collected over about 75 vernacular names, common names for bluebell, hyacinthoides non-scripta. 
Now, if I'd have been in my village 200 years ago and then gone to a neighbouring village, they could well have a different name for it, uh, the same plant. So we need this way of communicating. And this is where scientific names come in. They are generally pretty stable. So if I want to research a particular plant, its uses, ethnobotany or its, its, its ecology, then I'll use the scientific names. This allows me, it gives me a shortcut to look anywhere in the world in any book as well. And we don't get those issues like cuckoo flower. I say cuckoo flower, I'm sure Robin's got, and those of you listening, will have an immediate image in your head of a particular flower. And it's probably Lady Smock, another name, or Milkmaids. Those are all the same plant. But actually, cuckoo flower can reply to early purple orchid, can apply to bluebells as well. So there's it, basically cuckoo flower just means a flower that uh, is around when the cuckoos are. And it was applied to lots of things. Same as adder's tongue and those various other names like that. When the adders appear, these plants appear. So this is, and then the scientific names tell you quite a lot about plants. So we've got hyacinthoides. Hyacinthoides, or bluebell, is Hyacinthoides non scripta. So Hyacinthoides means, means looking or resembling. Hyacinth, as in Hyacinthus, so your garden Hyacinths, your big showy blue flowers. So the bluebell, it looks like a Hyacinth. And then non scripta, which is the species name, means without lines. And if you start looking at other members of, in this genus, the Hyacinthoides, you start to see that some of them have stripes on. And so it's a brilliant description. It's a plant that resembles a hyacinth, a garden hyacinth, with unmarked petals or tepals. Then I think, I think for, for, for me, what I found is that when I first started teaching, I have no science degree whatsoever right? or even any science qualification. So I, I came very much from the angle of having been, I was teaching before I went out to Africa and Asia, but it felt to me not that the language, the language can, depending who's using it, it can come over as being elitist. But it was more about how do I describe this plant and the whole area in a way that makes the language as inclusive as possible. Now, I have to say, out the gate, the scientific name is always an absolute. If it's, you just can't go like you've said on common names so it was about breaking it out and a lot of people have accused me of being anti-botany i'm not anti-botany at all but it can pull up a gate in front of people and if we're trying to engage people with plants the last thing i want to do is put up a barrier of entry so it's quite interesting when you look at world building if you know about game invention it's taking someone who's a little bit nervous about science and those botanical terms. And if there's one bit you're going to get the scientific name of the plant, an absolute must. There's no, you can't fudge that one, as you've just explained the reasons why. And then slowly as they enter this plant world, whether it's through foraging or just botany or just nerding out on beauty and being all poetic, then we start introducing slowly a larger vocabulary that makes it not cold and all academic, but brings it into the, the wonder and the mystery of when, like you said at the very beginning, the best way to get to know plants is to slow down with them. And that's a lot of what I teach is just sitting and observing. And then you want to know more. 
you want to learn about that. And like you say, the scientific names, the etymology just leads us into into and leads us into a whole other world, which is extraordinary once you get it. So I just wanted to say that. I think the even when it's 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 easy for science to be seen as dispassionate, but the number of times that I've had people who are on a course, they're looking down a microscope, dissecting microscope at a bit of a plant, and you suddenly hear a gasp because they've seen something beautiful. And or you're looking with a hand lens and you're looking at the most what most people would think is the most insignificant thing. So at the moment, a plant which I think has got real beauty is field woodrush, a little low growing plant, only a couple of inches high, dark chocolate flowers. So not really going to sell much i always think if i could make it the size of a lily garden lily if i could breed it to that size i'd be a millionaire because everyone would want it it's such a stunning plant close up so just looking closely and yes you can look beyond naming and the naming of the parts and actually see those bits but you're again you're what you've just said about taking it slowly and what i do i it's like thinking about a medical student they don't walk into a university and learning or a doctor's course and know everything they start with the body and you just don't know all your muscles and all the bits so this is what I teach that um, my courses I'm giving you a bit of a framework literally a skeleton to hang a few families on and you start by the end of the course you've got a few more families and you just keep putting a bit more uh, muscle and tissue on that skeleton and maybe in five years time of really working at it you'll have quite a good quite a handsome looking figure um, to look at uh, and it takes time and you'll forget a bit over the winter and you'll have to go back and go oh it was something sorrel but I can't remember how do I separate the sheep and the the fields uh, common sorrel and so on but you'll you'll then you'll at least remember it's a sorrel and then a bit later on you'll go oh that looks quite similar but oh it's a dock and and so on so you're building up this framework over time and then start also thinking about the I think ecology is really useful for plants and it's easy for us to um, forget about how useful that is. So let's say you're wanting to find cram, not cranberry, that's yeah, cranberry in the British flora. If you're going to find that, the only way you'll find it, because it's a small plant, we don't have acres of it. So if you're going to find it, you're going to have to know the habitats it grows in. So you're going to want to find a nice acid site that's going to get quite wet underfoot going to get quite boggy and it's going to probably be an open area bright sunlight it's not going to like shade so knowing all these sort of features you can then start to target your your habitats so you're you're also then going to be in a slightly different habitat but similar to say where you've got bilberries and they'll be on a drier area so by focusing on those and then looking at the associated species so it might be of no interest from a foraging point of view to my knowledge i don't think uh, hair's tail cotton grass has any foraging edibility I don't think yeah, I, I can't see it has I know it, it used to have ethnobotany they collected the seeds of the fluff but knowing that species grows with uh, cranberry then you can start to look across the landscape pick it out and go and say cautiously walk on that area because this is often quite deep peat and quite uh, boggy and that's where how you'll pick up those plants and then yeah connecting the ecology, noting a few species that highlight that habitat that you want. So if you're walking, well, let's say, go back to the sorrels again. So common or sheep sorrel. So you're walking through a, a lowland meadow, lowland field, you find common sorrel. You're on a 
to me, that's screaming out straight away. You've got an area that is moderate to high fertility. You've got reasonable moisture through a lot of the winter and probably throughout the spring. And it's, a, it's often on quite improved grasslands, so those farming fields as well as more traditional hay meadows. But then the minute I start seeing sheep sorrel, I know that I'm on a, a dr much drier soil, uh, often a very acidic soil. So it could be a heathland or an acid grassland. So just being able to separate those two species can immediately sort that out for me. Likewise, I'll be driving along the motorway and A road and I see a flash of old man's beard, Clematis vitalbra in the hedgerow. And I think, oh, we've just passed over a bit of chalky ground. It's an indicator of calcareous alkaline soils. So getting to know your species, they've all got, every plant has a story, whether that's a useful story, it could just be an interesting little bit of history about who collected it or who described it, or it could tell you a lot about the ecology. So learn the stories of the plants, they're out there to find. There are some good guides for that. One of the best guides, a recent book is a, a chap called Ben Averis has written Plants and Habitats, and it covers the commoner plants in the British flora and the habitats they contain. So it has a, for instance, it has a page on the three buttercups that he's readily get confused, your meadow, your creeping and your bulbous buttercup. And um, each of those tells me a different thing about a, a site. So if I find a big field of bulbous buttercup, I know it's never been ploughed or it doesn't like the disturbance. Those, it has a, not quite a nut, it's a swollen rhizome, but it's a bit like pig nut. Again, pig nut doesn't like being ploughed. So the minute you tumble it, it kills the plant off. So that's usually if you've got bulbous um, buttercup, it's a better, a nice site. Meadow buttercup, that's a, a solitary rosette of leaves. That again, generally is in a better habit, quality habitat, lower nutrients and moderate moisture levels. Whereas creeping buttercup tends to be a, a jack of all trades. It generally likes high nutrients, but it will grow in damp and dry as well. So just knowing a few species and highlighting those can actually tell you a lot about your, your, your habitats. I think that's, that's great that you bring that up because as you say, plants have stories. And one of my kind of sidelines that includes foraging, but is more about becoming intimate with place and our terroir, where we are, where we find our feet. And that, as you say, the more we can observe this and know it the more intimate we become with where we are and therefore hopefully more not to sound like a hippie more love is generated and respect for that environment and therefore we want to protect it because we protect what we love everyone who works with plants is on a deep journey and it just gets deeper and you go down a rabbit hole that you'll never reach the end of it because it feeds into everything else what I have concerns with is I, I teach a gathering practice of just gather for today. I'm not into hoarding. We could have a huge discussion on where that comes from. It comes from my visiting traditional cultures and specifically nomadic cultures. You can't hoard. You can't take 30 jars of blackberry jam with you on your back. It's just not feasible. So that feeds into a, an understanding of how we, we gather plants and it seems there's a tendency when I look at things like Instagram or I look at some of the Facebook groups and that there is this kind of, it is hoarding. Again, it's the Primark mentality on Black Friday sales. It's grab it all. And 
that approach forgets that there are so many other species dependent on the plant that we're gathering. Someone pulled up Rose Bay Willow Herb the other day and was talking about what's this little bug on it. So I went and stripped out a list and it's something that I am I have lacked doing on my own website, which is going to be addressed, which is what other insects and critters depend on this plant. So we become aware that it's not food just for humans. So moving on with that, what as an ecologist, and we know that plants are threatened a lot, not only from overgrazing and gathering, but certainly from development and the usual kind of modern issues. So what would be your advice regarding gathering plants? There's this default, oh, gather, you can gather 30% of the plant, you can gather 50% of the plant. And that seems way too generic for me. It feels like certain plants can be gathered quite heavily. Other plants, you really just best to leave them alone actually often so what would be your advice as an ecologist and a botanist for the foraging community i think i think you're right we're on a real knife edge it feels it's felt like that a lot in the ecological world for many years it's only in the public domain that people are starting to worry as much as they are which is it's not good that we're worrying but it's really good that we are worrying it's good it's, it's out a signal there. isn't it it is yeah and you're talking about other animals or other and even other plants other molds and fungi that are using the, what we're foraging so going back to cuckoo flower if you go and look at a cuckoo a pop standard cuckoo flowers you'll often find that there's the orange tip butterfly the female she flies along and she lays a single egg under on each inflorescence just each head of flowers and then she'll fly off to another one and lay another one. And they, so when you collect one, one uh, stalk of flowers there, you're potentially taking away one egg, one chance of a life for that caterpillar. You can debate whether that's a good or a bad thing, but yeah, so that there are things being used um, by other animals. And it does concern me, the exploitation of plants, because I, even in my short botanical career of 20 years or so, looking at the outdoors, I can see that these areas that we are interested in are more and more under pressure and areas that are close to towns, they're changing dramatically. They're changing from um, what could have been quite nice habitats. And remember, this is my view of 20 years ago. Somebody 40 years ago would say that my 20 year old view is actually quite degraded. This is happening again and again. And I suppose Again, that exploitation of plants, whether it's done for good intentions, so you're just taking a, a little bit of food for yourself, I'm, I personally find that acceptable. But then you've got that sort of proper profiteering where it's a bit, maybe the hoarding or the commercial collection, that's where I get very uncomfortable. And this is where we have to be cautious. And this is me coming from a botanical background, but also thinking as a forager, that if we're not cautious, it's easy for blanket bands just to come across the whole site. Or I live in Shropshire, the Shropshire Council say no foraging on any of our public land. It, that could easily happen. And that could do more harm than the good. And it also harms other people outside the foraging community. It stops people out with their grandkids, picking a few flowers, taking them home and looking at them and getting engaged that way. That child could be then the future. It doesn't matter what they do. If they're engaged with plants, that's good. I also, as a professional and amateur botanist, I go out, I survey areas. I do this for fun. My days off, I'll do this as much as I do it in work. I'll go and survey a site. And often I'll come back with two or three specimens in, in a bag with me that I want to 
uh, key out and double check, maybe press and send off and get checked with other people because not all those features can be photographed and, and verified that way. And that blanket ban on connect, collecting, which has happened due to commercial foraging, has impacted these nat natural historians being able to collect like that. And we have to get permission anyway from landowners to collect, and we should be doing that. Everyone should be doing that. It, do we always do that? I think we can all honestly say we've walked along a canal and just picked a few leaves of wild garlic, say, or whatever hedge, hedge garlic, and haven't asked the canals and rivers trust, but we've just done it. So we've got to make sure that what we're doing is legal so under the wildlife and countryside act it's illegal to uproot any wild plant without the permission of the landowner so i wouldn't go and say dig up pig nuts the only site i use when i'm teaching pig nuts and if i'm is actually a field center where i know they've allowed me and i dig up one pig nut for the whole group of 20 and we look at it so i know then that i'm having a minimal impact i've also if all 20 students dug up a bit of pig nut then that's, and every year I come back, that's going to have an impact. Now that might be just one forager might collect 20 pignuts as well, pignut bulbs. So yeah, I use the general rule, which is in the BSBI, the Botanical Society in Brittany and Ireland's Code of Conduct, which is a really useful document. It's available freely to download. And their general rule, which actually was a rule that was made up, the idea was there was no figure. So they came up with an, a number and then waited to be challenged and no one's challenged it no one said that it needs to be higher or lower so actually people accept and think yeah that makes a, a good idea and that's the one in 20 rule you go out you've got 20 leaves of wild garlic you can collect a leaf of wild garlic i possibly think maybe that's if there was only 20 leaves of wild garlic i'd probably walk away i wouldn't do that but if i'm studying bluebells and i've got 500 bluebells there potentially i can take away a, a good handful of bluebells to have in a vase and I think as long as you've got common sense and only collect what you need, whether that's for foraging or for ID, if I'm identifying bluebells, then I'd probably only take one, one stalk of bluebell. I don't need 20. So, yeah, it's, and then also avoid damaging the other plants. It's easy. And you see this with photographers, sadly, there's a early purple orchid in the woodlands and everyone's trampled everything else around it and don't realise the damage they're doing so. Now it gets trickier with some groups and others. So like orchids, I'll, I'll never pick an orchid. Partly there's this hesitancy, they're orchids, they're wonderful things. But also actually as a botanist, I know there's no value in me picking it. If I pick it and press it, it just goes black. It doesn't look any good. So even botanists just rely on photos there. Then we've got all of our protected species. There are species that are protected by law from harm. So things like Tunbridge filmy fern and so there's bluebells are on that list, but that's more for digging up um, and for being commercially sold. But most of those, you're actually going to find it hard to find them. There's a lot of species on that list. I've maybe seen a dozen of them and I go out and I twitch wild plants. So I deliberately go and look for these things sometimes. But if you're not sure whether you've got it or not and it's on that list, then you shouldn't be picking it anyway. And it's certainly if we're picking it for foraging, again, if you don't know what it is you're unsure whether it's rare endangered or whatever then leave it in the field because if you're not sure whether it's rare then are you sure whether you can put it in your mouth again and i know quite a few botanists myself have concerns about some of the wild foraging that's going on and they've been see they've been post sent round of um somebody's collected a load of wild asparagus they found it growing in the, in the wild and brilliant wild asparagus it's edible if you're a let's say italian you've got it growing in acres in UK, we've got such limited amounts of it, it's restricted to the southeast of British Isles and the sea cliffs. 
and it's got uh, whole management plans just looking after it. Now, one forager could easily go and wipe out one population there, and that's where it's getting very dodgy. And so I would avoid that. Whereas if you go and find uh, garden asparagus that's naturalised in land, then yeah, you can use that. So use the code of conduct. It's a really useful guide. But I'd also say start passing that information you've got around. So you've found a particular nice woodland or a particular habitat with these species. Share that information with the wood, with the wildlife trust. There's a whole network of people who want that data, because there's more. And I know of more cases where a plant's gone extinct locally by people not telling other people about it than somebody saying, "Oh, there's a rare something up the road," and, and then somebody digging it up. There are cases. There have been sad cases where things have been found and then they disappeared. But I know of a field of green-winged orchids. They're beautiful orchids, whole field of them. Uh, it's now under a housing development because when the surveyors went, it was uh, the wrong season. The landowner was so afraid of telling the Wildlife Trust because the Wildlife Trust would tell him how to manage the land that he didn't let on to anyone. So it was an open secret in the village that these orchids were there. But because he hadn't formally put the records in, then he couldn't actually stop the development anyway, and we've lost that site. So you're more likely to, to lose things through lack of knowledge than sharing information. So get start going out with your local botany groups and things. They are really good sources of information. They, they will help you. Now, some of them might frown on foraging a little bit because they've had bad run-ins in the past, but they if you're really keen to learn plants, then they will support you. And they'll say, oh, yeah, you've been going there to get your wild garlic. It's maybe a bit small patch, but have you been up to Earl's Hill? It's acres of it there and you'll have a lesser impact. And whilst you're up there, there's a really nice standard tooth work. Go and have a look. It's a peculiar weird plant and parasite. And so there are these ways to engage that way and be led and um, be supported. Yeah. So the, going to the local botany groups, for me, I just send people to the BSBI site and tell them to sign yeah. up. And then you've got free access to your local recorder and, and local people, which is really important. And I, I just, I do, will bang on about it. The BSBI is, is just such an, loads of people don't know about it, but it's such an important charity and foundation organisation that any forager, re really, any, anyone who works with plants in the United Kingdom, you've got to be a member. It's 30 quid a year. It's ridiculously cheap. And you are supporting such extraordinary work. Anyway, that's me off my soapbox regarding... Most, most of that work is done, again, by volunteers. So they do have a few paid people, but actually they're, they're supporting the, the impact they have. is thousands of skilled volunteers across the British Isles who are out surveying, out in all weathers, doing it for fun. Sometimes it doesn't feel like fun when you're on top of them all in the blowing gale, but they're, they're, they're field trips that they do. So your local botany group, they might go and do a what I call twitching. So go out and look for one particular rare plant and just see whether it's still there as it's spread or whatever. Or they might be doing a general sort of bashes where they go and look in one one kilometre square and try and record everything and then move on to another. And this is where we get all our distribution maps from. It sounds quite, well, to a lot of things, it's people, it sounds quite geeky or boring. But what you do is you start in one, one square on the map, you record as much as you can along that footpath and then move on. And then when you get to that new square, you have to start again with your list. And you say, oh, I've just made 120 species. But what's really good is it's that repetition, that learning. You've come across that plant again. Oh, we had that early, just before lunch. What was that? Oh, apple, or was it domestic apple? 
oh, what was a feature? Oh, one was hairy and one wasn't. And then it's just reinforcing. So that's where I cut my teeth and got really good at botany was doing this tetrad monad bashing, which is this repeated going on. And it's just really good. And you can see over years how your progression changes, how you, you do 40 plants in one monad, you think it's really good. And that was me 20 years ago. Now I'm getting, so I can add 100 species to that easily. Thing. And it's that's a, something that you're going out in a group together. Yeah, what yeah. What feeds into me is that this is, I'm very much into cross-pollination within disciplines. To get yeah. us talking, I was, I interviewed Mark Nesbitt from Q and the uh, head of the economic botany department there. And we were talking about this, the citizen scientists and all the kind of disciplines, loosening the guards that often can, the fences that can be around our particular academic. We have our castles, don't we, which we sit in and we, we all we have don't our communicate. Yeah. yeah. And it, I it, think this yeah. stuff is really important, the cross-pollination side where we realise we're not a threat to each other, but we're trying to learn from each other. Is, yeah. is where the protection of the land and plants and ecology is really going to come in. Regarding that thing of gathering, I have lovely friends, foraging friends, who completely disagree with me on it. And I, I struggled with the whole... I used to be vehemently opposed to commercial foraging. I wouldn't say I'm vehemently opposed, but I am concerned, put it that way. And I try, I spent a couple of years trying to figure this one out. And, and I thought, where does the commercial foraging fit in with protection and just not having this kind of resource extractive approach that humans have to the world at large. And it felt to me, and I'd be interested to hear, hear your thoughts on this, that so pretty much every time I've been in Asia, there's markets. Now, these can be traditional cultures markets in the middle of a blooming forest somewhere, not necessarily in a town. And you get all the hill tribes when people come down and, and they're selling their wares, whatever they're doing. But within those wares, I've, I, I don't think I've not seen it, is, is someone, an old woman or a bloke, they've gathered forest plants wild plants as food and but they're gathering just from their region they know <laughs> their knowledge of plants is at a whole other level they're bringing it down they're selling it as food now to me the equivalent of that would be a forager locally just supplying the odd restaurants or the local veg shop with a very limited number of plants that can tolerate that kind of gathering. My concern is when the shout goes out for bog myrtle or something up in Scotland and all the London chefs are having it shipped down to London. To me, that is, I'm trying to, and for years been trying to develop a, a foraging philosophy that is is guided by the ecosystem, that is guided by land where we are. And that whole industrial food distribution system, just that's fine for farm plants. That's why we do that. But we can't go and see wild edible plants in the same mindset or the same framework as we do a farm plant. What well, they're just, to me, they're, they're so different. What's your feelings on that? Is there a place? Are you comfortable or not with a local forager supplying 
local restaurants. And then what are your feelings on this big industry? I had a friend who's just a supermarket came to him to say, can you advise us on our wild brand, our wild edible plant brand? And it was like, what the beep are you talking about? He completely just told him to get lost because <laughs> he's fortunately on the same page. But I know that there's people out there who would just jump on that. And that's my concern. What are your feelings? I suppose we've got here wider discussions on sustainability and local food. Now, in the past, let's say the 80s, local meant something different to now and uh, where we get our food from. And local might have been Spanish tomatoes rather than shipping them in from America or South Africa. And we're moving away from that. But now and then the idea of sustainability and various things, maybe it's better to actually grow them in tomatoes in Spain. They've got high light levels then grow them in further north where you need artificial light and all of, and more heat. And so there's issues there. It's always never a, a nice, easy one of, no, grow everything in your local village because it, it won't always work, unfortunately. Or we're going to have a very boring diet if we do, uh, very limited. And yes, you can grow bananas in Iceland. They use the hydrothermals and the artificial heat there to grow bananas. But is that the best source of bananas and that sort of thing? But then... The, sustain, uh, the, the local side of things concerns me as well, because we do get more local. We seem to be getting even more local with recent things as well. But if local food, again, if you're a London chef or you're an urban chef and you're thinking lo local wasn't European, but is suddenly going to be Scottish, then and we're pillaging a moorland up there for a particular plant, is that acceptable as well? Or should you even go even more local and just being your local moorland? But again... I can think of Calberry in Shropshire and, and County of Shropshire. We don't have much Calberry. We have two large hills, long, long rate hill ranges in Shropshire. But I couldn't, I could go and collect some, enough for me. But if we wanted wild lingonberry, wild cowberry in, in Shropshire based, I wouldn't be happy if a commercial firm was marketing it as selling it as Shropshire um, product produce because if I then go to the West Midlands the next site is over at Cannock Chase which is a good 50 miles away whereas I go up into Scotland there'll be acres of it and actually it's more sustainable to collect there so it's a real tricky issue there's no nice easy right answer I think I think also if I had a local landowner who had a really nice patch of woodland ancient woodland with wild garlic and they had to make some income from the woods. Maybe they've gone back to coppicing but, and sustainable management of the woods. But again, that's not a massive income. I know a friend who's doing similar things. It, it would not bother me if, if a couple of people in that, that landowner's permission were going in there harvesting wild garlic in a sustainable amount. But that's appropriate to the site. That amount, though, probably isn't enough to even do some of the smaller supermarkets or the smaller vegetable box type people. And that's where you need a network of landowners uh, who could do that. And then doing a gentle touch over a lot of sites rather than going in. And, and this, I suppose, is how farming has become or have, have become. We seem to be coming out of it is that we go into one site, we hammer it to death. We get all the nutrients out. We then pile in more nutrients. That won't work for wild plants because our edible plants that we grow as crop, commercial crops have had generations of breeding to make them tolerant of that and look how many much inputs we have to do the fertilizers the herbicides to keep them going if we go and um, hammer that in a woodland a nice ancient woodland and we're going to damage the site irreversibly quite quickly but why again ain't, uh, wild garlic I'm, I'm picking on wild garlic but you can grow that quite well 
actually at home. I've got enough in my garden that I don't need to go and collect any. It's an easy crop. Okay, it, may, it won't grow in everyone's gardens with soils and things, but having a, a large plant sub, you can have enough for a few stir fries every couple of uh, a week, one stir fry a week with wild garlic in just from a few leaves. So it's thinking in different ways, isn't it? It's not a nice clear cut. I certainly would be horrified if Mr. Tesco's Mr. Sainsbury's came to me and said, I want to do a, a wild food range. I might. Yeah. It, it depends on their clever marketing, whether wild food means they've got a commercial crop of wild garlic and they're selling it as wild pesto. That's to me is fine if they can genuinely prove that. If it's going in collecting, having to collect from a wild source, that's getting a bit dubious yeah. um, and yeah. unsustainable. And I should think I would hope there'd be a pushback on that. Yeah. Of people. Yeah. I think what's in important to me and one of the the reasons I've got you on is like I said I think it definitely goes back to we need to be having these conversations with a multitude of disciplines because it's so important to get this right because (laughs) the consequences of getting it wrong are just not really worth thinking about actually well and it can tarnish that sort of brand almost of foraging as well if you get it wrong then it can it messes it up for everyone isn't it it's yeah it does and it's like you say you know, for me people say to me oh are you 100 percent wild food it's no i have done periods of times where particularly when i was wandering actually where it was 60 percent at least but that's only in certain seasons and now foraging is almost becoming this metaphor for life and the more I observe, the more I, I recognise the interrelationship between everything, the more I do it for the reconnection to nature, to understand the mystery and the beauty. And I know that's a bit poetic, most probably for you, but that does feed into actually one of the questions I had for you. So for me, plants teach us about ecology, the ecosystem and living in right relationship with the rest of the non-human world, obviously deeply influenced by Taoism and Buddhism. So what are your thoughts on this? Do you think being an ecologist or studying plants can feed into philosophical questions of how humans can live more sustainably as a result of observing far older species? Ecology has so much to tell us about how we should be living or how we could be living, maybe not should, but could. We have this connection with green. We've found that people who, uh, the studies done where people in a hospital bed looking at a brick wall or looking at green field, those in the green, looking out on a green field, whatever the value now an ecologist might sit in the bed and actually look and go oh that field's absolutely knackered but uh, but those who are in looking at the green get out of hospital quicker than those looking at brick walls so there is an innate need for humans to have this natural approach and that's something called biophilia and I wonder with a lot of times with my foraging is purely I'll be out in the field doing a survey or teaching and I'll just have a nibble on a bit of wild sorrel or I'll get other people to do or stick a bit of few leaves of wild garlic in my sandwich. So I, but it's that slowing down, it's that connection, it's knowing where your food comes from, knowing where a little bit of what you're putting in your body comes from. And I think I'm seeing more of that talking with people. I know students now when I, I used to be the oddball being a vegetarian on the masters years ago now about 70 percent of the undergraduates are vegan and that's they are ecology students so they've obviously thought about it more than maybe a physics course or whatever but they it show and they're doing that not necessarily for animal welfare issues which is maybe why i went veggie in the years ago 
but they're doing it for ecological reasons. They're thinking about the impact they're having, which I think is great. I'm not pushing either, but they're just that reduction in other and thinking about other food, where it comes from. And they're, they're very much aware. And these, so you've got the undergrads on the field trip last year. They're very much aware of where their food came from, whether that was plant material or other meat, uh, protein, other proteins. So I think we do, we are picking up more of that perception and ideas and whether people are coming at it from a Buddhist aspect or not, or those sort of things. I actually know quite a few Buddhist botanists, so it's not actually that unusual. I think a lot of my ecological friends have quite a good understanding of themselves and the impact they have. And they, they often have a more of a thinking approach, maybe. This is very broad brush. I shouldn't be saying this really because it means other people aren't thinking. But they're thinking about the consequences that they're having. And that is potentially that's quite a Buddhist idea anyway, isn't it? But so they're doing it without having that label of, of Taoism, Buddhism, that sort of thing. I think sometimes we can be far too aware ecologist. We're actually quite a doomful lot because we've seen, we know what it should be. We know what it has been and we know what it is now. And there's a long and distance between the two. Yeah. And where it's going and yeah. And um, it's interesting. A lot of ecological friends, very, none of us have had kids which is another interesting, interesting thing. But yeah, so I think there is a very much awareness, but I think plant, bring it back to plants and that sort of thing, It just being around them, there is a positivity. I know recently with all the lockdowns, whatever, it, I don't have to go for a walk. I've got, I grow a couple of hundred native plants in my garden. I know if I go out and spend time with them and just potter around with them, potter, potting up, uh, cleaning them up, whatever, I know that I'll feel better for it. So whether that's the horticultural side of improved feelings or not, it's just that feeling of positivity from them. There's that, there was that report that came out, science report, the, the, the gases that are released when your hands are in the soil and, and how that affects your mood and your mental well-being. I think it's almost a given now, even the government, that's why they allowed us out for an hour and then extended it because the mental health crisis that's hitting this country as a result of the lockdown or not necessarily lockdown but certainly covid and having things like the green gyms and all of that i just would not thrive in a indoor gym but yeah. going out for an hour's walk i hope i'd be getting a similar exercise but i'm getting far more stimulation and having watching something on the computer in front of a running machine or uh, listening to something music so yeah it's different connections isn't it but i think actually a lot of people would do better when they're outdoors or we've worked in our consultancy with challenging kids at times yeah, they're yeah. kids who just would not thrive in a classroom and yet you get them outdoors you give them tasks you work with them and they're different children altogether um, yeah. they're not the label that they are in a classroom we're all different but i think a lot of people would benefit from more outdoor living yeah. connections whatever that is even if you live in a high-rise flat i felt, felt so sorry for people who have been negatively targeted for going into the say the london parks but they, you live in a high-rise flat with the little kids, you've got to get them out and go and spend some time in the sun, in the nature, or even in the howling wind, walking around a park. You're, you're connecting with the trees, with the, the birds and everything that's associated with it. You might not know that, but just hearing that bird song lifts you, doesn't it? My, my partner, she's a, a play therapist, and the, every time the work ends up outside, because it's extraordinary. And she works with really traumatised kids, stuff yeah. they've seen. You wouldn't want to push it on anybody or experience. So, yeah, nature is definitely the great healer. So 
we're coming to the end of our discussion. I'd really appreciate you coming on. And just tell people where they can find you if they want to follow up with you or come on your courses. And I do encourage anybody who's listening to this, if you are in the UK, to try and head towards Mark's work because, as you found out, the guy knows his stuff. Thank you for having me on, Robin. We do have our own website, so that's our Ventus Ecology. This year, we don't have as many training courses with current things on, but usually we, we do a lot of training generally West Midlands based, but also South Wales and a few other venues. We do a lot of work with the Field Studies Council, who are a brilliant organisation that run um, ID courses all over the country. They're doing a lot more online training, which is online training is good, but still there's no benefit for uh, there's there's more benefit for having hands on experience, uh, actually practically holding a plant and looking at it or a dormouse or whatever course it is you're doing. And then we also, if you're really into it and you don't necessarily have to have a science background, but there is a master's program that I'm involved with Manchester Metropolitan University, who we have people on that course who have all walks of life. We have some people who are a PhD, but in a language. One one lady was fascinating. She's worked in uh, as a language person looking, working with South America. Indians in Brazil but she wanted to know a bit about botany so she could when she was communicating with them and talking with the scientists acting as the intermediary she could work with them other people have had 30 years practical ecological survey work experience but absolutely no qualifications at all so we have everything from one end of the spectrum to the other and that's how I got on the course I had no paper skills but I had lots of practical skills. And since yeah. then, we've been teaching a lot on that. And so that's getting the field skills is the, the real thing. I think a lot of university courses just don't offer any ID training or very little. And if you do a three years degree, you might walk away with three weeks of ID practical field training. And to be called an ecologist at the end of that is nothing. Um, yeah. You couldn't <laughs> even learn bats or newts in that time. Wow. So yeah, just get out there, get out with locals, um, local groups national groups find other people to go with there might be someone else in your village who's really into the plants and yeah. yeah great and like i said at the beginning if you want to follow up all the links and the resources that we've discussed in this show are in the show notes at eatweeds.co.uk forward slash podcast so thanks again mark 